Good morning. Welcome to Faith Bible Church. This is week 10 of scattered worship because of coronavirus and out of concern for our community. We are once again not gathered in our building this morning, but we are scattered, worshiping throughout our community and around the world. And when I say we're scattered around the world, we have people watching in 48 different states, about 12 different countries. It's been fun to see where people are joining us from since April 1st. Our live stream has been viewed from Nepal and Tanzania, India, France, Spain, South Africa, Guam. That's just a few of the countries that we've seen show up. And we will continue to live stream services in the weeks to come. However, and this is exciting news, we will be reopening uh, the church next week, May 24th, uh, for gathered worship. So we're going to have on that day two uh, morning services, a 9 a.m. and an 11 a.m. So two family worship services only next Sunday. Uh, there will be no child care or other ministries going on, so no student Sunday school, no kids Sunday school. Uh, ABFs will not be meeting. Um, another important piece of information, we will not be providing coffee uh, next week. So those of you that need that, make sure you uh, get your own provisions for coffee. We won't be providing that next week or in the weeks to come. This is just our effort at a gradual or measured reopening. That's what we've seen uh, throughout uh, different layers of our society, and that's going to be our uh, approach as well. We've been publishing other details online and in church-wide emails about the different measures we're taking to have a successful reopening. If you have any questions about those things, feel free to call us, talk to me, talk to another one of our elders or staff members. We'd, we'd love to answer any questions you might have, make you feel as comfortable as possible uh, as we regather next week, May 24th, uh, and then May 31st as well, and then uh, as things change going into phase three of the state reopening plan, uh, we'll have some other details. Uh, to share with you along the way. But we are eager to be back in our building next week. We hope that you are as well. I want to call us to worship with the words of Psalm 67. Let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Join us as we sing all creatures of our God and King.
sovereign God and, and Savior, and he not only is sovereign and above our trials, but he's also with us. So let's sing of that goodness of, of our sovereign God.
Good morning. Good morning. Good to be here this morning. And uh, I would like to ask you to join me now as we commit our time of study to the Lord. So join me in prayer, if you will, please. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for a beautiful day that you've given us today. Lord, it is a gift, and we rejoice in it. Uh, we, Lord, come today to worship and praise you. We are grateful, Lord, that you are a sovereign God. You're in control of this world. And so, Father, because of that truth, we can relax and we can rejoice uh, in that truth today. Father, we're grateful for the measure of peace, for provision, for protection that you've granted us during this outbreak. Lord, we uh, are blessed here at Faith Bible Church, and we acknowledge your blessing on us today and our families, Lord. Your watch care over us has been more than we could have ever expected. God, we thank you for that today. Lord, we're also grateful for all the first-line uh, defenders out there, the EMTs, the medical professionals, the military, the law enforcement people whom you have charged to look out for us, to be in service to us, Lord. I pray your richest blessing upon them and their families today for the extraordinary service they provided us. Lord, we would commit also the government officials that you've placed over us, uh, Lord, to you. We ask you, Father, to give them wisdom and favor uh, as they make decisions about how best to open and get things started again. Lord, we just commit them to you and ask your favor and blessing upon them. And Lord, for the churches, uh, both here in Edmond, the state, the country, indeed around the world, Lord, that you would bless the leaders of those churches with wisdom and, and your favor, Lord, as they make decisions about how to start ministry back. Uh, we're thankful for them and their service as well. Now, Lord, as we come to uh, the time of opening your word, I pray your richest blessing on Mark today as he comes to teach us the, the word of God that you would give him wisdom and power to cut it straight, Lord, as he always does. Father, we thank you for his ministry. We thank you for this time together today. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Rock, I stand on the ground, is 
Thank you all for leading us this morning uh, in our worship. Uh, what a great song to end on of uh, Jesus Christ, uh, our solid rock. Well, good morning. It's great to have all of you here with us uh, this morning. Uh, I want to give uh, a heartfelt thanks to all of you for uh, your uh, fellowship and your faithfulness over these last 10 weeks as we've had to uh, meet via live stream. Uh, your encouragement and participation have uh, lifted our spirits and uh, continue to energize us uh, for the ministry that God's called us to, and we're deeply grateful uh, for all of you. Uh, we look forward next week uh, to seeing many of you here uh, face-to-face. Um, there's going to be uh, some limitations and precautions in place. We'll, Jay's already mentioned a few of those, and we'll be giving you more details about that as uh, the week goes along. But we're excited, very excited next week to, to see many of you here uh, face-to-face. Well, let's take our Bibles and open to 2 Peter chapter 3. Um, we're in a series in the book of 2 Peter, and we've titled this series, Know and Grow. And uh, this morning's message in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9 Um, I've titled, It's Only a Matter of Time. So let me read uh, these verses for us in uh, 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 9. Or actually, before I do that, let me have a word of prayer. Let's, Let's pray together and commit our time to the Lord. Father, we praise you as we've just sung earlier here this morning, the great three in one of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Father, we look to you, the maker of heaven and earth, who sit enthroned above the vault of the earth. And Lord, we thank you for your might and for your majesty. And we thank you for your mercy. God, we thank you that you're rich in mercy. Father, in light of all that's happening in our world today, we're thankful for your sovereignty, that nothing takes you by surprise. You're never caught off guard by anything in this world, and you're never caught off guard by anything in our individual lives as well. Father, I pray that you'd help us to trust you more to have greater faith in you and confidence in you and in your word. Father, we look to you today for those who need your healing hand upon them. Um, Within our church body here, maybe people watching from other places, they they need your healing touch upon their physical body, maybe upon their emotions for discouragement or depression. They're downcast. Father, I pray for any whose employment's been affected through this time, um, for, for financial help that's needed and provision. Lord, I pray that you'll be the strength and the stay for all of these needs. Father, as we open your word together, we ask that you teach us by your Holy Spirit. 
And through our time in your word today, for all of us, Lord, you'd give us hope. You'd give us strong encouragement in you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, years ago, uh, I read Billy Graham's biography. It's titled Just As I Am. It's actually an autobiography. And um, in this book, he relates a story that happened back in 1961. Uh, Five days before he was inaugurated as president, uh, John F. Kennedy asked Billy Graham to join him down at their family's vacation home in Florida uh, to play golf with him. And after the game of of golf, they were driving back to the Kennedy home when the president-elect stopped the car by the side of the road, and he turned to Billy Graham and he said this, I want to ask you something. Do you believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ? And Billy Graham replied, he said, I most certainly do. And then John F. Kennedy asked Billy Graham, he says, well, does my church believe it? He's a Roman Catholic. And Billy Graham said, well, they have it in their creeds. And Kennedy said this, he says, well, they don't preach it. They don't tell us much about it. I'd like to know what you think. And so sitting there in the front seat of a car together, Billy Graham explained to John F. Kennedy what the Bible says about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And he remembers when he got finished, Kennedy responded, very interesting. We'll have to talk more about that someday. Now, as I remembered that story this week, as I studied our passage here in 2 Peter chapter 3, I wondered how many people have the same question today uh, as the former president. Uh, In light of uh, the current pandemic and all of its repercussions in our society, it may be that more people are thinking today about the second coming of Jesus Christ and the end of the world than at any time in recent memory. And I think that's a good thing because the Bible has a lot to say about the return of Jesus Christ. In fact, I don't think there's any truth that's more clearly stated and highlighted in the Bible uh, than the truth that Jesus is coming back again. I mean, Jesus himself said it many times. In John 14, 1 to 3, he said, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The Bible leaves no doubt that Jesus Christ is coming back literally, physically, and visibly to this earth someday. You know, there's what might be some surprising statistics to some of you about the second coming of Christ in the Bible. It's mentioned over 1,800 times, over 1,800 times the Bible tells us Jesus is coming back. There are 46 Old Testament prophets, some of them writing and some non-writing prophets, but less than 10 of them speak of Christ's first coming, while 36 of them give some details or events related to the second coming of Christ. For every time the first coming of Christ is mentioned in the Bible, the second coming is mentioned eight times. There are 260 chapters in the New Testament. In those 260 chapters, there are over 300 references to the second coming of Jesus. One out of every 25 verses. In fact, it's mentioned five times in 1 Peter. And really, you could say in many ways, in 2 Peter, the coming of Christ is really the prevailing um, issue. Um, Next to the subject of faith, the second coming is the most dominant topic in the New Testament. For every one time the atonement of Jesus Christ is mentioned, the second coming is mentioned twice. Uh, Jesus refers to His own coming again 21 times. 
And people are exhorted over 50 times in the New Testament to be ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. Those are some amazing statistics that I'm sure many of you uh, would never have dreamed of. In fact, it's been pointed out that the entire Bible can be summarized in three statements about the coming of Jesus. Jesus is coming, Jesus has come, and Jesus is coming again. The whole Old Testament is Jesus is coming. The New Testament tells us He's come, but also in the New Testament it tells us Jesus is coming again. Now, in spite of all of this, in 2 Peter, the apostle is facing some false teachers who'd infiltrated and infected the early church who were denying and mocking the idea of a literal, visible, physical second coming of Jesus to the earth. In fact, you could really say the central tenet of their false teaching was denying the return of Jesus. In fact, we we see this, Peter alludes to this back in chapter 1, uh, verses 16 to 18. He says, "We We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Remember, that's referring to the transfiguration when Peter and the other disciples there, the the small group, saw a preview of the second coming glory of Jesus Christ. So Peter alludes to it back in chapter 1 that they were denying the coming of Christ. But now here in chapter 3, he's going to hit this issue head on. Now think about this for a moment. The last inspired words here in 2 Peter chapter 3 of the apostle Peter to the body of Jesus Christ tell us about the future. They point us uh, to the end. They tell us what's coming. So now let me read uh, these verses for us. 2 Peter 3, 1 through 9. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. By His word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. May the Lord write His eternal word on our hearts this morning. Now, as we move here into chapter 3 of 2 Peter, we move from uh, beware to be ready. He's warned about these false teachers in chapter 2, and he says, beware of them. But now he's going to tell us to be ready for the coming of Christ. Just to kind of put the book in our minds again, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter is establishing the believers. He's talking about spiritual growth. In chapter 2, he's exposing the false teachers or these seducers. And now in chapter 3, he's going to talk about expecting, and he's going to look at the second coming. So chapter 1 is establishing them in spiritual growth. Chapter 2 is exposing the seducers. Chapter 3 is expecting uh, the second coming. 
Now, the real meat of what we want to talk about here this morning is in verses 3 through 9. Verses 1 and 2 are really kind of a transitional passage and a a restatement of the purpose uh, of this book. And really, these first two verses are saturated with one thing, the importance of remembering, remembering what God has said. He says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing you, and I think the first letter is 1 Peter. And he says, what I'm doing is I want to stir up your sincere minds by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, the commandment of the Lord, our Savior, spoken by your apostles. And he addresses these readers as beloved, and he, he does that four times in this chapter. And it shows us his his tenderness and his love uh, for those who've been put under his care. But really the gist of these first two verses is he's saying here that we don't need so much new truths to be given to us. We need to remember the old truths that have been given to us and that we tend to forget. Look, we're always learning new things and discovering new ways to serve the Lord, but we never outgrow the need to remember the basics. And the basic he's going to talk about here is the second coming of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is coming again. And he says in verse 2, you should remember the words spoken by the prophets and the commandment of the Lord. Now, you notice commandment there is singular. It's not plural. It's the commandment. And probably in the context of this chapter, what that means is the commandment to be prepared for Christ's coming. So he's saying you need to remember what the prophets said before in the Old Testament about the second coming of Jesus. And you need to remember the commandment of Jesus that he gave to be prepared for his coming, which was also spoken through the apostles. They talked about it too. So what he's saying here is the Old Testament prophets, Jesus, and the apostles all point to the coming again of Jesus. And this shows us a beautiful uh, continuity and unity of Scripture where there's equal authority to the Old Testament prophets and to the New Testament apostles as they speak together in one voice about the coming um, of Jesus Christ. So these first two verses kind of set the stage then for what we find in verses 3 uh, through 9. So after this, this uh, brief reminder, there's two main points I want us to look at in verses 3 through 9. I want us to look at the denial and then the defense. The denial by the false teachers of the second coming and then Peter's defense uh, of the second coming. So let's begin in verses 3 and 4 with the denial. Notice Peter says, know this first of all. In other words, as a matter of first importance. You'll notice there the word know. Um, we, we've called this whole series on Second Peter, know and grow. Uh, the word know appears 16 times in this book in different forms. So here's something again that he wants us to know. Know this first of all, or as a matter of first importance. In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. Now, the last days is, most of you know this, the the long period of time between the first and second advents of Christ. I get asked by people a lot of times, do you think we're living in the last days? And the answer is yes, biblically. The last days is that extended period of time between the first and second comings. Now, when people ask, are we living in the last days, what they probably really mean is, are we in the last days of the last days? And that certainly would seem so, but we're in these last days, the time between the two advents. 
And he's saying here that during this time of the last days, as we're waiting for the coming of Jesus, there's going to be a surging crescendo of mocking and scoffing. And notice the focus of their scoffing in verse 4 is, where is the promise of his coming? Now, this is not an honest question, but it's scoffing and mocking. They're saying it kind of like a taunt or kind of in a sneering way. Where is the promise of his coming? He isn't coming back. We know he said he is, but he's not returning. It's all kind of a big hoax. And so what these false teachers were doing is they were uh, playing upon and praying upon people's disappointment that Christ hadn't come back yet. Now think about this. This is only 30 years after Jesus went to heaven. So this is the late 60s A.D., a little bit over 30 years after Jesus has gone to heaven. And already people are beginning to say, look, it's been so long now since Jesus promised He's coming back and He hasn't come, so He's not coming back. Now we're coming upon nearly 2,000 years since Jesus went to heaven and promised that He's coming back. And so this kind of thing today gains traction with a lot of people. Look, it's been so long, it's a hoax. Jesus isn't coming back. Now, what they're really doing here is they're arguing for the non-occurrence of an event because of its non-occurrence. In other words, it's not going to happen because it hasn't happened yet. It's kind of like saying, I'm never going to die because I haven't died. Now, Jesus isn't coming back because He hasn't come back. And, of course, that's a fallacious argument. But even today, mocking the second coming is prevalent. The greatest theologians, and I'll use that word in in quotes here this morning, but the greatest theologians of the last 100 years all deny the literal return of Christ. And I could go on and I could give you about 10 names here, 10 or 15 names. They wouldn't mean much to most of us, but they deny a literal second coming. Some of you may know about a, a teaching out there called preterism. The word preter means past, and preterists believe that almost all the prophecies in the Bible have already been fulfilled. In fact, full preterists don't believe in a literal future second coming of Jesus, and they mock those of us who believe in that. Now, one thing that I think is fascinating here is in a strange, ironic twist, people who scoff at the second coming are actually fulfilling this prophecy. So they're mockers and they're scoffers and they're taunting with the idea that Jesus isn't coming back, but they deny the second coming and they're actually in doing that fulfilling one of the signs that Jesus gave of the second coming, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, saying, where is the promise of His coming? Now, to support their view, they appeal to this idea of uniformitarianism. They appeal to this idea that Things have gone on uniformly since the beginning. Notice the end of verse 4. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. This is the idea of uniformitarianism. That's a big word, but basically uniformitarianism means that the universe is a stable, unchanging system. Uh, This world, this universe is a closed system with no room for divine intervention, for intervention from the outside. In other words, there's constancy. There's a status quo since the beginning. There aren't any uh, punctuated interruptions or cataclysms that occur. It's 
It's almost kind of like the, the deistic view that God kind of started this world, and, but that He never intervenes within it and just kind of lets it go its own way. Now, interestingly, they deny, these mockers did back in Peter's day, they deny the second coming on the very same principle that dominates much of evolutionary thinking today. The things just go on and on and continue in constancy without any divine intervention. Now, when they say that since the fathers fell asleep, the fathers here refers to the Old Testament patriarchs. When that term's used in the New Testament, it looks back to the, the patriarchs of the Old Testament. But the point here is, is that the worldview here of these false teachers does not include the possibility of divine intervention in the course of history. Now, of course, we all have to admit that there's some truth to the idea of continuity and constancy. There's general uniformity in our universe and here on this earth. In fact, if there weren't some degree of uniformity, then a chaos would ensue. So there is a fixed order that's been established by God. There are natural laws and universal processes that function in a consistent manner. But that can't be carried too far and preclude God's involvement in history. So again, their, their basic argument is Christ can't come back because that's just not the way the world works. And interestingly... Every day that passes and every night that goes by adds more force to their objection. The more time that goes by, the more forceful their objection and the more people that might be inclined to believe them. But you'll notice at the end of verse 3, Peter puts his finger on their real problem with the doctrine of the second advent. Their real problem is a moral problem. Notice what it says at the end of verse 3. Don't miss this. Mockers will come with their mockings, say, or, uh, following after their own lusts. The real true motive, the real driving force behind their arguments is their own lustful desires to live their life how they want to live. They deny the second coming to fit their own lifestyle. In other, word, they, in other words, they want to write the second coming out of the script because when Jesus comes again, the Bible says He's going to come in judgment. And the notion of a final judgment challenges their autonomy. They want to think and live as they please. They want to live without moral accountability. And so we see this often today. They camouflage their views with high-sounding scientific arguments and emotionally charged rhetoric. But at the root and bottom of it all is that they don't want to face accountability for their lives. That's the real heart of the issue here, Peter says. They want to live and follow after their own lust. That's the real issue. So that's the attitudes and the arguments of these scoffers. Now, in verses 5 through 9... Peter's going to move on and give a defense here of this seeming delay in the second coming, and he's going to affirm that Jesus is coming again. Now, the first defense against their mocking and denying the second coming is what I call God's power, God's power. Notice verse 5, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. What he's going to do here is he's going to say, look, when, when people deny the idea that God intervenes dramatically in history, they're overlooking two very important events, creation and the cataclysm or the flood. These are two bedrock foundations to a Christian worldview that God made everything, He formed it all, but also He flooded it all. 
And Peter's saying about these false teachers, they have selective memories. Uh, they're, they're intentionally blind. They're like horses wearing blinders. They, they deliberately deny this fact. It says when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. The Net Bible translates it, they deliberately suppress this fact. So Peter shoots down this revisionist notion of uniformitarianism that had shut their eyes to creation. He's saying, look, God intervened dramatically in creation. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, their starry hosts by the breath of His mouth. Psalm 148, verse 5, speaking of creation, says, At His command they were created. And Hebrews eleven three 3 says, By faith we understand that the universe uh, was formed at God's command. God spoke into existence all that we see out of nothing. I mean, if, if you want to talk about divine intervention in history, that's it. God made everything that exists out of nothing. And it says here that it was formed out of water and by water. And, of course, this just refers back to Genesis 1, the account there of the watery chaos. The, the, the earth was formed out of the water. That is, the world emerged, the, the earth did, out of the watery chaos. And when it says it was by means of water, it has the idea that water was the instrument of creation since it was by separating and gathering the waters that God created the world. And it's also interesting here that water was the agent both in creation but also in the cataclysm or in the flood. But what he's just saying here is, look, these false teachers have a willful case of amnesia. They're willfully forgetting that God created everything that exists by the word of His power. Now, the second time that God intervened dramatically is the flood, and they willfully overlook this. Uh, Notice uh, down in verse 6, it says, "...through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water." The word flood there is the word we get our word cataclysm from. And this is the third reference uh, by Peter of the flood in First and Second Peter. This is the third time. This is a, a key event in his worldview and his theology. Now, how do people often explain the flood? I believe if you read the Genesis account, it was a global flood that inundated the earth and killed everyone on earth except eight people, Noah and his family. But people will say today, well, it's a legend or a myth. I mean, it's, it's an exaggerated account of what was just a local flood. The problem is the Bible says the water was 20 feet above the highest mountain peaks. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but this is something I've always found fascinating. There are universal flood traditions out there all over the world. You can look this up probably on the internet somewhere, but there are over 200 different flood stories in different cultures all over the world. Some of the most ancient writings we have tell about flood stories. And there's an ancient Sumerian account of of a king named Aziusudra, who's told by the god Enki that he's going to destroy the world with a flood. And he takes his family and his animals on an ark and escapes destruction. Um, the, the ancient epic of Gilgamesh tells about a man named Gilgamesh who's uh, two-thirds man and one-third God, and he goes into the underworld and meets an old man named Uten the Pishtim who escaped a, a global flood sent by the gods to destroy um, humanity. 
What's interesting is when the rain ceases, the ark comes to rest on a high mountain and he sends out a raven and a dove to make sure he could leave the boat. And just like the biblical account of Noah, um, there's a Hindu flood myth where the main character, Manu, enters an ark and the flood destroys everybody on the earth except him. Here's uh, what one writer says about this. He says, these flood traditions vary, but there's much in agreement. I'm talking about over 200 of them. In 88% of them, there's a favored family. In 70%, survival is due to a boat. In 95%, the sole cause of the catastrophe is a flood. In 66%, the disaster is due to man's wickedness. In 67%, animals are also saved. In 57%, the survivors end up on a mountain. In smaller percentages, birds are sent out, a rainbow is mentioned, and eight persons specifically are saved. We believe these have to have come from a common source of a real event uh, that took place. Just one other thought here. A man named Hugh Miller, back in the 1800s, had investigated all this. Here's what he says. The destruction of well-nigh the whole human race in an early age of the world's history by a great flood appears to so have impressed the minds of the few survivors and seems to have been handed down to their children in consequence with terror-stricken impressiveness, that their remote descendants, even to the present day, have not yet forgotten it. It appears in almost every mythology and lives in, and lives in the most distant countries and among the most barbarous tribes. So everywhere you go in, in ancient writings and ancient traditions, we find this idea of a cataclysm, of a flood. So our world is what it is today, not so much because of continuity, but because of cataclysm. God stepped in to form the world and God stepped in a second time to flood the world. So Peter's point here is there's nothing stopping him from stepping in again someday to return back to earth and to judge the world. And when it says in verse 6, through which the world at that time was destroyed, the world doesn't mean the, the planet, it means the people. All the people were destroyed but Noah and his family. And then he says in verse 7, but by his word... Notice God formed it all by His Word, and He flooded it all by His Word. God does what He does by His Word. By His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. And we'll see that next time in verses 10 through 13 when we see how the world is ultimately going to end. But Peter's main point here is he's shooting down their faulty presupposition that God doesn't intervene dramatically in history. He's saying, look, God did it in a flood in the past. He's going to do it by fire in the future. So in spite of their scoffing, Peter says, Jesus is coming. Now, the second response or answer to this taunt is God's perspective. It answers the question, why is it taking so long for Jesus to come back? He says in verse 8, Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. He's quoting here from Psalm 90, verse 4. It's the oldest psalm. It was written by Moses. And he's saying in here that God doesn't view time the way we do. Here's the way Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. He says, The point is not that time has no meaning to God, but rather His use of time is such that we cannot confine Him to our time schedules. 
His use of time is extensive so that he may use a thousand years to do what we might feel could be done in a day, as well as intensive, doing in a day what we might feel like could only be done in a thousand years. Look, time doesn't affect God. He's outside time. Uh, Time does affect us. If you don't believe that, if you've been married for a while, get out your married your wedding pictures and look at them. If you don't think time affects us. Time takes its toll on us. But it doesn't affect God. God lives outside of time. He exists outside of it. In fact, God created time. How does the book, the first book of the Bible begin? In the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Before God created matter, he created time. It's like a a man making a watch. As a man's making a watch, he's outside of it. He exists without it. He's not part of it. He makes the watch and he winds it up and he gets it going, but he's outside of the process even though he's the one who initiates it. And he sets the hands in motion and he controls it. He can move the hands of time. And that's the way it is with God. God has his own calendar. He keeps his own time. God doesn't mark time the way we do. I like the story of someone imagined of a little boy talking to God, and the boy said, God, how long is a million years? And God says, well, to me, it's just a minute. And the boy says, well, God, how much is a million dollars to you? And God said, to me, it's just a penny. The little boy thought for a minute, and he said, well, God, can I have a penny? And God said, wait a minute. <laughs> That's the way God is often with us. I mean, we, we don't understand God's use of time. Now, this is not a mathematical equation that a thousand years is equal to one day with God. It's not some mathematical equation. He could have just as easily said, to God, a day is like a billion years and a billion years is like a day. Or he could have said, one second is like a trillion years or a trillion years is like a second. The point is that God views time differently than we do. When we think about Christ's coming, we have to keep God's view of time in mind. Even though it seems so long to us and like a long delay, we have to remember God's view of time. It's kind of like uh, maybe our view of time and our children's view of time. If you tell uh, one of your children that uh, her birthday is just uh, a month away, she starts asking you every day, is today my birthday? Is this the day? Their view of time and our view of time is different. Or you set out on a long trip in the car and you tell the kids it's going to take 12 hours to get there. And about 30 minutes into the journey, they ask you, are we almost there yet? What seems so long to us, such a long delay, um, is nothing to God. So Peter's saying here, look, there's a seeming delay. There's not really a delay because God knows when he's coming back. There's no delay with him. But it's, it seems like a long delay to us. They say, look, remember God's power. God is sovereign. He intervenes in history. Remember God's perspective. God is timeless. And the third answer to this seeming delay is God's patience or God's mercy. The seeming delay in Christ's coming is not evidence of God's unfaithfulness, but it's evidence of His patience and His mercy. I mean, think about how patient God is. He, he waited 120 years before he sends the flood after he warns man. Uh, God waited patiently before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. God waited patiently with the nation of Israel before he finally sent Israel and then Judah into captivity. God waited and waited. 
God waited a long time before He destroyed the wicked city of Nineveh. God waited and gave Nebuchadnezzar seven years' time to repent. Think of wicked King Manasseh who reigned 55 years in Judah and the time that God gave him and the patience with him. And ultimately, the end of his life, he turned uh, to the true God. One person says it like this, God is not slow, he's patient. God is not tardy, he's deliberately delaying. God is not indifferent, he's merciful. One writer I read this week put it like this, it's not slowness but patience that delays the consummation of history and holds open the door to repentant sinners, even repentant scoffers. Not impotence but mercy is the reason for God's delay. It's not that God's somehow impotent to do anything. It's not that God is unfaithful in any way. The reason for God's delay is one simple reason, and that is His mercy. God is rich in mercy. The Puritan Richard Sibbs said, there's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. God's delay is a delay of mercy. Now, there's a tragic irony here we dare not miss. Think about this. These mockers were using the patience of God in giving them time to repent against Him to question His faithfulness. Think about that. They're using God's own mercy and His own patience against Him. The patience He's offering to them and the mercy for them to turn to Him, they're actually using that against Him to question His faithfulness to His promise. And you know, as I read this passage this week, I thought a lot about this. Think of what God sees every day. Think of what God has been putting up with just even since the coming of Christ, His first coming. Now think about what He endures day after day. Abortions and murder and lying and idolatry, and deceit, and drunkenness, and greed, and immorality, blaspheming, people who take God's name in vain day after day, and mocking. I mean, think of all the blasphemy that's taking place, and all the offense to the holiness and the righteousness of God. I mean, it offends us, and we're sinners. Think of what it does to a holy, just God. And through it all, God is patiently waiting day after day, and He's working. We ask ourselves, how in the world does He take it? It's because He's patient. The waiting of God, this delay, it highlights His heart to open up the opportunity to save sinners. Now, the last part of verse 9 is a controversial passage in many ways because it says that God is not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, this verse can't mean, as some try to make it mean, it can't mean that everybody's ultimately going to be saved. Because if you go back to uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 2 and uh, verse uh, 9, it tells us that, the God, that God keeps the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And the end of chapter 2, verses 20 to 22, tell us about the judgment of the wicked in the end. So even within this book, we know that God is going to judge the ungodly. So it can't mean that everybody's ultimately going to be saved. You say, well, what does it mean when it says God's not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance? There's a key phrase in this verse that, that most people miss. In fact, most commentators that I've read this week, and I probably have uh, 20 or 30 books on, on 2 Peter, most of them don't point this out, but a few do. Notice the middle of the verse. Let me just read the whole verse and, and emphasize this. 
The Lord is not slow about His promise as some count slowness. God's not just you know, forgetting His promise somehow, but, but notice why He's waiting. But He's patient toward you. The you there is believers. If you go back to the very beginning of this chapter, He says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you. You there is the believers. Now he goes on in this chapter and talks about they and them, that is the false teachers. But he says, God's not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you. And then he says, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. I think that the word any there and the word all are defined by the you. So I would translate it like this, God is patient toward you, believers, the elect, not wishing for any of you to perish, but for all of you to come to repentance. So what I think he's saying here is God is working his plan to save the elect. All of those who before time had their names written in the Lamb's book of life. God is using time to serve his purpose of redemption, to save those whom he has foreknown and foreloved. So at some point, the final person is going to be saved during this age. The final person that God has chosen will be saved, and the church will be complete, and Jesus will come. And the rapture of the church will take place. Romans chapter 11 calls it the the fullness of the Gentiles, when the, the full number of the elect of the Gentiles have come in. Now think about what that's going to be like. Some person out there is going to be the last person to be saved. And at that point in time, the rapture is going to take place. The Lord is going to come. But in the meantime, it's our duty to preach the gospel so that those whom God has chosen can be saved. They they can't be saved in a vacuum. They have to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But every day that Jesus tarries from returning is due to his patience with sinful mankind. The more people will repent and turn to him for salvation. God is giving sinners time to come to him and repent. By the way, let me say this. He may be giving believers also time to get right with him. Jesus can come at any moment. If you don't know him, you need to make sure you do. And if you do know him, you want to make sure you're right with him. Because this day of grace that we live in will not go on forever. read a great quote this week that I've, I've savored. It says this, Though God's patience is lasting, it is not everlasting. God's patience is lasting but it's not everlasting. In fact, we'll pick up next time in verse 10. Look at the first words there. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It's coming. Jesus is coming. And this age will end. And He will keep His promise to come back and to take us uh, to be with Himself. Some of the reading I, I did a while back, I ran across this story I thought I'd share with you. I'll just read it because it's uh, better to read it than try to explain it all. It says, It was known as Operation Gothic Serpent. You might remember it from the 2001 movie Black Hawk Down. Michael Durant was the pilot of a Black Hawk helicopter that crashed during the Battle of Mogadishu on October 3, 1993. 
Its occupants were part of the elite night stalkers. In the immediate aftermath of the crash, two Delta Force snipers who jumped into the side and the helicopter's crew of, of Bill Cleveland, Ray Tenney, and Tommy Field were killed. Durant survived but badly injured his back and had a broken leg. The Somalis broke his nose and paraded the injured pilot through the streets of Mogadishu and held him captive for 11 days with only rudimentary medical assistance. They kept telling him, Ranger, you're going to die in Somalia. It was repeatedly screamed at him over and over again. But then it says, on the fifth day, Durant heard helicopters, but figured they were only signature flights designed to keep the fleeing warlords jumpy. He soon heard the heavy metal band ACDC thumping the Somali air with the song Hell's Bells. And then something marvelous in his words happened. He said, the sound of the rotors grew louder again as the helicopter made a, a close pass. And then I heard the voice of a warrior angel calling out to me on that speaker. Loud and clear, the voice said, Mike Durant, Mike Durant. And he said, I said to myself, oh, Lord in heaven, I can't believe it. My heart started to pound and the tears just sprang from my eyes. Mike Durant, Mike Durant. It was Dan's voice. I would know it anywhere. My good friend Dan Jalota was up there calling out to me, searching desperately for me. He knew that he was flying above a hornet's nest of RPGs and could get himself shot down at any second, but he just didn't care. And he said, Mike Durant, Mike Durant, we will not leave without you. We will come for you. He said, I swallowed hard with tears streaming down on my face. I hung on every syllable of Dan's oath that he would come again for me. I tried to reach out to him by telepathy. The broadcast and the Blackhawk faded away. I listened hard for a good long minute, but they were gone. Yet I knew they'd be back. They wouldn't give up. Soon enough, they would find me. Soon enough, it'd all be over. And then the person who wrote this closed with this. Jesus' promise at John 14, 2 is like Dan Jalota and the Night Stalker's loud message, uh, loudspeaker message. It's not just a message of hope, but a promise to be fulfilled. The Lord Jesus calls to his soldiers, often wounded, sometimes severely. And he says, I'm coming back to receive you to myself. Jesus is going to keep his promise. That's our hope. And that's our only hope. It's the only hope we have in this world um, in which we live. Well, let me close with one other story. I've told this a lot of times, but uh, I couldn't resist telling it again uh, this morning. It's a story about a young lady who busied herself getting ready for a blind date. And this wasn't just dinner in a movie. It was a, a, it was a very planned dinner, an exclusive downtown restaurant with live music and dancing. And wanting to make a good first impression, she took the whole day off work and cleaned her apartment and went and got her hair done, got a manicure. She came home and put on a beautiful dress and was ready for the arrival of her date at 7 o'clock. And 7 o'clock came and went, and he didn't show up, and she waited patiently. Finally, after waiting for over an hour, she figured she'd been stood up. So she took off her dress, let her hair down, put her pajamas on, gathered there in front of the TV to watch her favorite movie uh, with some junk food there around her and with her dog. Sometime later, there was a knock at the door, and it was her date. And he looked at her surprised and said, what? He said, I gave you two, two extra hours, and you're still not ready to go? I like that story because to me, it's a message to us that we need to make sure we're ready to go uh, when Jesus comes. Look, the, the seeming delay in the coming of Jesus Christ doesn't mean he's not coming. And if you're ever tempted to doubt the second coming of Jesus because it's been so long, remember God's power. 
God created this world. He formed it and he flooded it and he's going to intervene again. Remember God's perspective that God is timeless. And remember God's patience. God is merciful. He's waited almost 2,000 years, so there's no excuse for us not to be ready. And events in our world today point toward the coming of Jesus Christ. I mean, the stage is set. Signs are lighting up like runway lights as Jesus approaches. We uh, appear to be living in the twilight of history. And it's only a matter of time. And Jesus is coming back for those who've come to Him. If you've never come to Him, He's not coming back for you. So if you've never done that, come to Him right now and call out to Him. The Bible says in Romans 10, 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Look, we're not saved by our merit. We're saved by His mercy. So call out to Him today if you've never done so before to be merciful and to save you through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Make sure you're ready when He comes. Make sure when He comes that you're ready to go. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank You for our Lord Jesus Christ, the promise that He's given to us, that He's coming again for us. Father, help us not to grow weary in doing good as we wait. Help us not to somehow think that it's been so long now that He's not coming back. Father, help us to remember that You're sovereign, that You're timeless. God, help us to remember that You're merciful and You're patient. And Father, again, if there's anyone here today listening to my voice who's never trusted Christ, may they do it now. May they come to Jesus so when He comes someday, He'll come for them. And Father, for those of us who know You, we've been placed here during this time and We pray that you'll use us to spread this message of the gospel to draw those that you've called to yourself to put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. Help us to be faithful ambassadors, Lord, in these times in which we live. Father, help us to live lives that are pleasing to you to make sure we're ready when Jesus comes. We'll be ready to go. We ask these things in the precious name of our Savior, our soon-coming Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.
Amen. Well, thank you again for being with us uh, this morning. Uh, we look forward to uh, seeing many of you in person next week. Um, it's going to be a great time as we gather together. So I hope you're able to make it here with us in person, those of you who are able to come. And again, I just want to leave us with uh, this thought from this passage. We want to make sure when Jesus comes, uh, we're ready to go. Let me uh, just leave us for our benediction this morning with really the final words in the Bible. Uh, These are the last words of Jesus. The next to the last verse in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. And the Apostle John then says, Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. All God's people said, Amen. God bless you. We hope to see many of you here uh, next week. Have a great week.